I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. Andy, according to my friend, Internet, this is what Letterboxd is. Letterboxd is a global social network for grassroots film discussion and discovery. Use it as a diary to record and share your opinion about films as you watch them, or just keep track of films you've seen in the past. Showcase your favorites on your profile page. That is a lot. You bet it is. That's why I want you to tell our fair listeners just one thing you do with Letterboxd that has changed the way you watch movies. Let them have it. Okay, are you ready for this? So ready. I love lists. As of today, I have 246 lists in my account. I use them to track the movies I watch, organize them in all sorts of different ways. I track them by hand. I clone lists from other people. I use them to plan what I'm going to be watching. All sorts of things. I just, I love creating lists. It's a fantastic tool. Sexiest animated characters. Andy, what is this? We love Letterboxd. And if you're a movie lover, we are sure you will too. And when you upgrade from the free account, you will remove ads and support the great Kiwi team building this amazing service. Just use the discount code NEXTREEL or visit thenextreel.com slash letterboxd to get 20% off your pro or patron membership. And it works for renewals as well. Welcome to Trailer Rewind. This is where we go back and look at films that Pete and Andy talked about in their trailer picks from the regular show. We go back, watch, and discuss those films. Today, Justin's with me, and we're going to talk about Comet. Whoosh. That's a comment. That was my comment noise. I had a very vivid dream the other night about us. What was it about? This dream. It was a dream of memories. I was wondering if I could have your number. She's with me. No, she's not. <laughs> they were just memories of us over the years. You believe in love? I don't. So let's put it to the test. Date each other. You're not impressing me. I disagree. I don't mind your pessimism as much as I usually mind pessimism. That's great. I hate people who think I'm too negative. Wait, we'll say what you were going to say and then maybe we should like not talk for a minute. I'm probably going to fall in love with you. So this was Andy's trailer pick from back in December 5th, 2014. 
what he said he liked about it, that it looked really interesting and had a 500 Days of Summer vibe. And he also noted that there were some interesting uh, color palettes in the visuals. And, and Pete also noted in the trailer, there were some interesting things going on with the framing of shots. Did you did you go back and listen to their, to their Let's Do Trailers from that episode? I did go back and listen to that. Yeah. Do you think that they went and saw it? With their trailer picks, looking at the list of things, I don't think they have time. I don't either. To go back, yeah. And then, the, so then, so that it was Andy's pick, and then immediately after was the teaser for uh, the Force Awakens. Yes. So the other thing about it is, I think it totally got dwarfed by that, and they sounded super excited for it. And then immediately when it went to like fanboy central for oh. Force Awakens, I was like, "Did we talk about something else? I can't remember." Well, and I, Andy said this movie comet is coming out like now. It's out yes. now, so you yep. can go see this. You could be listening to this while you're watching the movie. So it was. It wouldn't have been that hard for them to. That weekend, go out and see see this film, but which I, prob- probably means they missed it. Probably, I don't know what kind of wide release uh, this had because it does look like it was a smaller sort of art house film that I can't imagine. Um, you know, despite the I think the recognition, the name recognition of the cast uh, of our two leads, that it would just have played in a lot a lot of screens across the country. Yeah, I didn't know anything about it. And when we were going back and reviewing and trying to select, it was pretty much the name recognition that, that drew me to it as well. So yeah, so I, I, I would assume they missed it. And it, it, I think it's I think it's definitely worth talking about. The premise, and this I found interesting, is that it says that it's set in a parallel universe and that it bounces back and forth over the course of an unlikely but perfectly paired couple's six-year relationship. And where is that from? That's that's something I pulled off of IMDb. But I okay. th- they had also, when I went back, they also talked about the parallel universe piece. And I can see components of that possibly in there. But to me, I could also see this as... One story similar to 500 Days of Summer, you get it out of sequence, but it's that same couple in the same world over different periods of time. Yeah, and I think I'm I'm glad that we're talking about 500 Days of Summer because I, you know Andy noted that it had that vibe, and it it definitely does. It's it it's right up that alley. It's it's different, obviously, um, but uh, but it it felt a lot like 500 Days of Summer while I was watching it. And that's something that I. I tried to keep out of my mind because that is such a uh, just a well just an admired film. I mean, such a set such a standard. I think yep. for for a type of film, and to try to come alongside that is is a challenge. And this is a film that I I enjoyed. There were a few times I had some problems with it, but it it is ambitious. It takes on some large things, and I think it does some of them really well. It's something I similar to last. Our last trailer rewind. It's a movie that I liked. I don't know that I loved it yet. Yeah, it's perfect for Netflix, right? And that's the thing. So when they did trailer rewind, it was out in theaters. Right now, it's available on on Netflix. So hopefully, we're going to put this up for everyone to listen to with a chance to catch it on Netflix. Um, I think it's it's the perfect find. Like when you're scanning through Netflix for a movie to watch, um, I you're kind of rolling the dice and I've, I've hit as much as I've missed in terms of that, this for that, for if, if we're judging by that sort of uh, category, I, this was definitely a hit for me. Uh, but mostly because again, it's the kind of movie that I like. We have the TNR short coming up that Tommy and I recorded. That's it. It's either going to be just before this airs or just after this airs called Mindbender. And the little hint of Mindbender that they added into this when, um, 
when she suggests that he, that Dell possibly died and the rest of the film is just is just his brain sort of living out a, a love story that is totally up my alley for stuff that I like and then you know I I, I actually really really liked uh, really liked where they went with it and, and liked the ambition and liked the creativity there well it it does it's a film that I found. I think will hold up to multiple viewings because of the not only the structure of looking at the sequence and what's coming before and after to see how the relationship changes and when they're referring to things that you don't find out until later, but also the the ambiguous ending. And we can come back right. to that later, but it's something you can bring your own sort of background experience or, or hopes and dreams for this couple to this film to see how they whether the ups and downs of their relationship and ultimately how things end. And I think that's something that, depending where you are in your life, you may see different aspects of yourself in different uh, sort of sequences that they have. You may connect with some parts of the relationship at different points in your life differently. So that's so. let's not leave the parallel universes concept behind on that, because sure. that's really interesting. So when I read that, you know, that from IMDb, I didn't know it was from IMDb, but I thought that was... That was kind of crazy um, because I really I, I viewed it. I kind of took it on its on its word of that it was these six years in these two people's lives, and um, and when the concept he talks about the dream that he has where he was dreaming this film basically right yes. and and in some lives we were together and some they weren't and I I, I took that as a a dream uh, or the statement of a dream, not really what was happening because I can't seem to rationalize the story, uh, the, the snippets, the episodic parts mm -hmm. and say, this one's real. This one's not, this one is one universe. This one's a parallel universe, that kind of thing. So I felt like it was more, uh, the poetry of the characters thinking about it in terms of a parallel universe but then all of a sudden then you think about all the novelty pieces of like the, the comet for example or the 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 earthquakey dream shaking yes. reality inception type thing um so i wonder i mean where did that hit for you the one that i think caught my eye the most was there's a scene when they're the segment where they're on the train and they have they've walked between the two cars and they're standing at the end of the train car and the, the door is there and there's a window behind them that just has this sort of like spiral outer space galaxy there. Yeah. And that caught my attention and I I didn't know what to make of that if that was, this is a train that's in some alternate universe or if it's coming back to, is this, is he dreaming this? Is he sort of reliving through his dreams to try to do over what had gone wrong before sort of as an attempt to fix the mistakes he had made. So it, it didn't distract me from the film because I could look at this and say, let me, I can set that all aside and say, I could look at this as straight narrative chopped up like 500 days of summer. But the fact that there are a lot of things that point to dreamlike aspects of this film add that other dimension to cause me to think who's, who's dream. If this is a dream, uh, and and why? So it's it's something I I still haven't fallen on one side or the other because it didn't come enough come across as a really predominant thread that I as a viewer had to really wrestle with whether I was going to accept or reject that concept because it was easy to to set it aside. It didn't impose itself on me so much that I had to 
either say, well, I'm going to pretend that I don't see these things or it's it's forcing me to deal with this. It it added atmosphere to the film that I think in in a relationship when you have when you look back sort of the the things that we remember that are factual and the things that we we misremember either intentionally because that's the way we want to remember them. It brought that to it to me that I thought from the beginning we're set up where he's standing outside an apartment door and it, it's interesting because he keeps repeating himself this is not a dream this is not a dream he right. knocks on the door door opens and the movie begins so as i was thinking about that it's is he if that's the present where he is and we're getting everything else are we getting his memories of how he's remembering these things cuz it to me it's really more his story than hers right which i also thought weight in the balance of how the scenes are presented. It's definitely more from his point of view. So are, is it his recollections of his relate of their relationship together? I like that a lot about the premise, right? Is the idea that I don't think it needs to be viewed as a parallel universe story to enjoy it. And I think having, you don't need it while you're watching it, but it's great to talk about afterwards. And I think, you know, that's why I, I didn't know that IMDb had listed it that way. There's also another thing on IMDb that's from IFC Films, which doesn't bring up the concept of the Mindbender, the the, the parallel universe at all. Oh, okay. It just talks about their relationship. It's it, I'll, I'll quickly go through it. Justin and Emmy, Justin Long and Emmy Rossum are star-crossed lovers whose relationship blooms and unravels over the course of six years in this mysterious, dazzling, dazzlingly original romance. And then it goes on to kind of describe scenes from the film. But at no point does it talk about that sort of supernatural aspect. So I think it's really interesting that, you know, that the this, the summary and the storyline by two separate sources viewed it differently. And that's the kind of stuff that I love in movies. And that's why I think it's such a win. If you're just looking for a movie that works sure. with this, this, it's a great one. Because those, those elements will catch you off guard. Because if you, yep. if, you, if you don't know about this possible parallel universe, there's, I mean, there's the, the scene at the end. Where there's two suns in the sky. There's, yeah, what is that? Yeah, what were the two suns what, for you? Right. <laughs> well, that that's going to come back to. I think there's a couple clues as to really what the reality of that that last scene is. Well, that that sequence that takes place in the apartment where uh, he comes back to he's visiting her. It's sort of the last phase of their relationship. She's uh, seemingly possibly possibly engaged to someone else. So it's sort of that uh, final. Uh, reconciliation. Uh, okay. So there's, I, I think in, in my interpretation of the film, there's one thing that I thought gave it away. It, it caught me off guard when I was first watching it and I had to go back and rewind because there's a scene as he's, so he's in their apartment, in her apartment and he's sort of just wandering around. He, he doesn't want to take the tour, but he, there's a book on the bookshelf. That's a book she's written. He picks it up and inside is just, nonsense it's just a jumble of characters yes. and numbers and letters and i it was something about like the art of science or something like that was the title yeah, I thought, it was oh. her like it was her thesis right it was right. her doctoral thesis yes her doctoral thesis and at first i thought oh it's something really out there it's like some cryptography then i thought oh no it, it, when you're dreaming things that may make sense to you when you later wake up, you realize they don't make sense or you don't have the ability to fill that in if you try to think about it too much. Like you could open a book and read a book in your dream and you could say, oh, I'm reading this book. But if you think back to it, could you really place the words there? And so for me, I, it was one clue that I felt really set that as we're not in 
the real world. We're either in his dream, in his mind somewhere. Then as the earthquake starts to happen, sort of reality is starting to intrude upon the dream. So for me, the two sons at the end is just one more hint that we are not in the real world. We're in some fictional fantasy or dream or, or fabricated memory. I love it. I love it. And you know, one of my favorite movies, and actually, if you look at the nextreel.com, you see that's kind of my, my uh, wallpaper or my, my profile picture is Donnie Darko. And that is the attachment that I put to Donnie Darko, that he, that he actually was killed and that the film is is this sort of extra piece that he's given in his death to experience the life that he wasn't able to lead, where he gets these superpowers, or he gets the, you know, in yeah. this movie with Dell, Dell gets to experience the life with Kimberly, and it's not all great, but he gets the experience because right. he would he would, didn't have the opportunity before. I don't know if that's my interpretation of it, but I love that. I love that concept, that that sort of idea in the film. And that's the thing that is so enjoyable with all the segments that you can look at these phases of the relationship and how how they're structured, you know, sort of the dynamic of the relationships, the different points, uh, you know, and and we the part that really I found interesting was we would get references to pieces through other conversations early on. There's a scene, uh, I think it's in the train when they when he first is stalking her at the train train station and they they talk about the wedding her friend's wedding that they went to yeah. and then we get that scene and then you see you know she at that point at the train station says you know that that was sort of the beginning of the end and then you to see that sequence play out of what he was hoping that that weekend was going to be that he's yep. got this ring in his pocket and for him it's that point where he was ready to take it apparently to the next level. And that's where things fell apart. There's such tragedy yeah, in well, those moments. It is it's such tragedy. And, and, and if you, if we put it into this interpretation that we're talking about a dream, it, it reminds you of a dream, right? Where you're trying to do something. Yes. There's something that you're grasping so much in your dream that you need to get to. The thing that I, the terrible thing that I'm thinking about now is if you actually have to go to the bathroom when you're sleeping <laughs> and yes. in your dream, you go to the bathroom and for some reason you never find relief. Yes. That's a terrible metaphor for what we're talking about <laughs> right here. But it, but the ways that he is foiled in trying to propose feel that crazy in that moment, in that scene. And I, and I like if, if it is a dream, if he's experiencing that, it seems it, the tragedy is lessened. I guess yes. to me a little bit yeah. where I don't feel nearly as bad for him as I did when I watched it. And I, to be, to be fully, uh, you know, forward about it. I was, I, I loved, I actually really loved this movie. It, it, it has a soft place in my heart. However, I felt terrible after watching it. <laughs> I mean, honestly, like the, it, I, by the end of it, I, I was kind of in love with both characters for different, completely different reasons. But, uh, but I just felt so terrible that they were tragic. It was, it was like a star, it was a star crossed lovers thing for me. So, so speaking of, of star crossed, that comes yeah. back to their, their initial meeting as yeah. at a viewing party for a meteor shower. Yep. And it's also, at, it's later in the film, but when we're back in that period of time where she asks him what his favorite word is, and he says, comet. Yeah. And for that to be the title of the film, it's, it's one of those things. It didn't, I started watching the film, okay, comet's the title, didn't even try to place any meaning on why. I thought, okay, meteor shower, maybe something's going to happen with a comet. Then he says it's his favorite word, and then it, 
it's left at that. The conversation moves on. They never come back to that again. And I thought, is that really the best you can do with the title? Is, is it shoehorned into the script? Or is it you need to find something, you pull it out because you can't find a title for the film? But it was something that I, I don't... I don't know that there's a better title I could come up with for the film, but I thought if you're going to really place that as the title, shouldn't that carry more more weight or depth in the story for the characters? Yeah, you know, I like it for a title for the movie. I, I like it, but it, I fully concede that it is 100% a metaphor that I just don't understand. And I and I would love to, Sam S. Mail, uh, to, to learn about it, but... Um, but it, it, I agree with you. I, I didn't catch why it meant it. I thought it was pithy and great, but there's a lot of pithy and great in the movie. There was a lot of really sharp writing that I enjoyed in here. And I thought that to have these two, two actors carry the film and to have, have a script that's going to allow you to stay with them and to keep you engaged with them through the highs and lows with minimal interaction with other characters there's oh yeah they're not even in the movie really yeah there's there's at the beginning is they're in line sort of the meet cute that happens is they're waiting in line to get in that's really i think all that we have with other characters and i thought that the, to have a script that can rely so heavily on, on two to keep things moving to keep scenes moving forward i thought it was just well done a well done script early in the film i definitely felt like they were trying too hard like the meat yeah. cute yes it, it was cute and it was i mean it worked but it but as a as an it took me out of it a little bit because i was like i felt like i was reading the script lines as i was watching them act them and that's not i'm not trying to uh, that's not a i'm not trying to make it bad for either emmy rossum or justin long no. i just think the script was so so that way that um, at some points I felt like they were really trying to show that they were like that. It it, it did work really hard, I think, and it worked too long yeah. for that. So that when we get to other scenes, I think one that stuck for me the most is the, the New York, L.A. conversation where she's in the car and he's yeah. standing outside. That one, and maybe it's shorter. I, I you know, again, I don't. I try, I tried to keep a list of how many times we were in each place and when each happened to see if there were connections or triggers to launch from one to the other. But that one, there was something about just the raw emotion at that point in the relationship that that one worked really well for me. I think Paris had its moments as well. It was really strong. The train, I felt there that that sequence sort of dragged for me a little bit. Sure. You know, it's sort of a transitional point in the relationship and, and almost felt like a placeholder of that's where they sort of agree to give it another try. And I, so I think the it did work really hard at the beginning to lay the foundation. And I thought for the amount of time that we were there that I was expecting more sort of callbacks to lines or scenes or moments there. If we're going to spend so much time on a joke of whenever he sees somebody on the street, he wants to walk up to them and say, hey, where's my money? Yeah, to not have a- that, you know, come out anywhere else. It was... To establish that, his character. That joke didn't hit for me at all. Right. Yeah. I was waiting for the payoff later on. And there were too many of those things that I felt set up in the beginning that worked to set them up that didn't deliver. Now, I do enjoy the rest of the film. And perhaps I, you know, I can speculate and say, oh, it may have diminished my enjoyment of the film to have these callbacks to the to the beginning of the relationship. But it, it did seem really heavy, you know, and the, and the grounding of the relationship. Yeah, I agree. So the... Speaking of the transitions between scenes, 
this isn't a simple, we're going to cut, we're going to fade to black, we're going we're gonna to do a George Lucas wipe. We have a really unique device that, again, I think draws attention to itself and may play into that, is this a parallel universe, is this a dream? We don't have traditional cuts. We get, I don't, I don't even know what you would call them, almost like a loss of uh, signal in a, in a broadcast. We get static, the image jumps, the color shifts. Uh, and those, there's a lot of time spent, you know, to, to put those in places. So I know there's intentionality then, but did that bring you out of the film? Was that just another sort of flavor that's added to the film? Well, see, I like those kind of things. And I think in, on the film board, Andy's asked me a couple of times what I mean when I say I really like novelty and that's the kind of stuff that I like. So I didn't see it as a plot device or something to signify a switching of the universes or anything. I saw it as a novelty. In other words, it was something that isn't part of the story, part of the film brought to the film to make it more powerful, more emotional, heavy like that. So the switch the static loss reception vibe thing, the the actual visualization of the comet as she wipes her hands across the sky, the idea if and this is before I was kind of buying into the idea of the dream after death sequence, but the idea of the world crashing down around you or or the book as you or the thesis as you mentioned the gibberish there those felt like novelty to me and the fact that they connect to the story too that that's I really like that kind of stuff so it didn't take me out of it because I was along for the ride some of the things that Pete and Andy talked about I want to yeah. come back to those because they talked about the color palette I think we're sort of in a place to, to talk about that because we do have you know the di- we've talked about the different sort of segments in the film that we have we've talked about these unique visual transitions was there anything in particular you noted about sort of the color palette or vividness to any particular location or the way color was used through the film? You know, I can't hinge it. I can't attach it to any sort of meaning because I haven't had that depth of thought about the film yet, but I like it. Um, I And I think uh, I watched the, tr- the trailer actually today in preparation to, to talk about it. And I think you see it in the trailer in the way it's going to be used to a good use actually in the film. Um, so I see why Pete n- noted that and the framing and the color, uh, both in that way. My, my question about it really is, is when it's, when it's in art, it, when it's made as an art part of the art film there, is there a, is there a reason in particular that they did it or did it feel like for you, did it feel like it was artsy art, art for art's sake? Did it feel like they were shifting Shifting the framing, for example, uh, without purpose. So in terms of framing, and this was something, as I was watching, my wife was was working on a, a project, sort of off the side, sort of half watching. Tough, tough movie to watch while you're <laughs> while you're out working on a project so, in the background. Right. But so vi- the things that caught her attention were that really the composition of the film, so many times as they're cutting in dialogue back and forth, she will be left screen dominant and he will be right screen dominant or you know at another point he will be left screen dominant she will be right screen dominant to the point of i think as pete said it looks like somebody kicked the tripod because there's there's a scene where you know they've had their you know sort of fight as she's in the car and that car she's in the driver's side and that is pushed to the far like quarter of the left hand side of the frame so it's like the rest the rest of the car is completely out of the frame it's like the edge of the steering wheel is right there at the edge of the frame because when he's talking he's dominant on the right side of the screen so to me it it really as i thought about it communicated the the gap or the space between them right. at different points of the relationship that visually there's always something between them some visual space between them 
And I think, again, to me, it's it's one of those novelties that was done in a way that didn't draw a lot of attention to itself. It's something that you may have thought, oh, that's it's interesting, but it didn't pull me out until you know it was brought to my attention. Oh, that's interesting framing. And as I as I watched it, I thought, you know, keeping track sort of in the back of my mind, oh, here's here's some interesting ways that these shots are being set up. Now, is there something more to it if I go back to look at where they are in the dynamics of the relationship, who's sort of got the upper hand or who's more dominant and where they're placed on the screen. Is there something at that level? I don't know. And that's where you get to the point of, I think, borderline imbuing meaning on things that may not have been intentional. Well, and it happens so much in this film that it, you know, you almost feel like it's more, more to suggest the fact that it's askew. You know, it's more like someone kicked kicked the tripod because the filter with which we're watching the film is questionable. And the reason why I say that is because it's supposed to mean something. I mean, or I guess in traditional movie land, it yes. you know, right is supposed to be positive. Right, right. is the hero, and yes. left is the is the villain. And movement to the right is favorable, you know, and then moving to the left is the opposite. But I don't know. It happened so much that I wasn't able to track that, right. and I wasn't able, able to track my own feelings associated with it either. Right. So I think more it's it's to kind of suggest that there's that we're not necessarily seeing the whole the whole of real life as we watch. When does the off framing start? When they're waiting in line, that's not happening. It may become more exaggerated at different points, but. There are scenes that even early on, they're split that she will be always left and he will always be right. And you'll look at, so they'll, they'll be your master and it's she's on the left, she, master shot, she's on the left, he's on the right. And then even when you go to your one shot of her, rather than centering her or anything, she still remains heavily framed to the left and he'll still remain heavily framed to the right on his shot. So it's maintaining yeah. that thematic positioning. So again, the fact that it's not anything you can point to to say, oh, I began noticing it at this point, tells me that it's it's been woven in in such a way that it doesn't draw attention, but it, it's something that's of note, but without right. becoming a distraction. That's how I feel about it, too. I think part of it, you know, speaks to the strength of the performances. Yeah. Because you are engaged with, with Justin and Emmy so much in their characters of Dell and Kimberly that your mind doesn't have time to just sort of, well, there's something, there's nothing that I really have to listen to right now. My eye can wander and look at what's going on because there's so much in the writing. There's so much about the relationships in getting to understand these characters, their backgrounds, who they are, what their issues are, what their wants are out of the relationship, that there's so much that we're tuned to and they, they draw our attention to them that we're not having time for our mind to wander so much to be distracted by the the visuals. I think that's something that bears up for second viewing is to, now you know the story, look at sort of those extra novelties to see how they're enhancing the film and the story. And they they live it. Like, as actors, they live the the script really well. I really felt like Justin or Dell, the Dell character, was really rooted in place. And that, and that Emmy Kimberly was sort of flitting about him in a really interesting way um, that works with our different interpretations of the, what this film could be. And their dialogue went that way too. I, I was really impressed. So I'm not 
a huge knowledgeable person about Emmy Rossum. Um, the thing that I knew her for was Fan of the Opera. And I know she's done tons of stuff in addition to that. But that's the one that I kind of remember her for. But I sort of found myself falling in love with her as the movie went on. Not necessarily Kimberly, but Emmy uh, in her performance here. Because she, whether they were acting choices or whether they were specific on the part of the director, she really aged in the six years of the relationship in sort of maturity and what was happening. You see the way she is approaching life when they have the meet cute as uh, as sort of a level of innocence that changes in her sort of demeanor as she gets more familiar with love, which I think is really kind of cool. And I was really, I really appreciated the way that she delivered that. Whereas the Justin Long character, and I think this is by design because I'm sort of buying into it, is similar or the same throughout. And he's kind of giving the same the same attachment to uh, to the feelings of love and everything. He's he's sort of still the cynic and still the egotist the whole way through, um, and he learns to love her through their relationship. I just I was really happy with the way they delivered it, and I think they connected with the script in a way that I don't think everybody could have. This is sort of stepping outside the film. It's it you're gonna fall in love with with Emmy as Kimberly, and maybe this is perhaps because. In August of 2015, she became engaged to writer-director Sam Esmail after two years of dating. There you go. So there's that extra piece to it. Oh, Sam. (laughs) But it it is really, I mean, you described that very well, that a character that really is relatively static, you know, Dell is who he is. And and to see Kimberly change over time, it's only mentioned a couple times, but there's a backstory with Dell with his mother that's yeah. that's there at the beginning as they're in line. And then again, when there's the New York L.A. scene, when they sort of break up again and then he gets that call about his mother and, and all of that. And I, I tried to figure out what that was supposed to do for his character. Was that to bring some sympathy to him? Because he can seem this really hard person that just, how how could somebody be in a relationship with him? He can be so cynical. He can be very full of himself at times. Was that to soften him up to, you know, it felt like something I could remove from the film and I, I wouldn't lose anything with his character. It's a good point. And I, and I think it's really, for me, it was a vehicle to, uh, to up the level of tragedy for him and, uh, and also to show his, his intelligence, right? The early stuff where he's talking about being a cancer researcher and how he saved his mom and talking about his, you know, whether it's his locus of power in affecting his life, how he feels about his ability to, to change outcomes at the beginning of the film versus how he is trapped in the tragedy as it continues on. Um, it, it didn't bother me, but it does. It, it's that kind of thing of uh, noticing that the tragic stuff is just constant in his life. And um, and I definitely felt that with him. Sort of to start wrapping things up, we did talk about we did talk about cinematography that was Eric Koretz with the okay. cinematography. Um, Andy's always a big fan of talking about music. I am not much of a musical person, but we've got a, a score by by Daniel Hart. I don't know if there was anything that you wanted to discuss regarding music and its ro- role in the film. The score was background to me. Um, it wasn't distracting, which I think is good. It's not something that I will seek out uh, in terms of themes or whatnot. There is one song in the film, um, and my interpretation of the reason why Kimberly puts on her headphones to hear the song as they're moving through 
the hurtling train uh, is to distract her from the, the, the her fear, which I think is interesting. And I thought the song was placed well. I'd never heard the song before, but um, I thought that was placed well. The rest of it was pretty much background for me. Oh, no, there's, there's one other song. There's a song she's listening to in the car as she's driving. Oh, yeah. Roxette. <laughs> so she's got that song, which I, I forgot about Roxette because because she actually hangs up on him to listen to the song, which he then says something to the, you know that she only listens to that song when she's sad or something like that. Wasn't it? It must have been love. Yes, it must have been it's love. over now. Yes, exactly. Ugh. Which then, when you see what happens at that point in their relationship, another one of those ah, uh, okay, there's there's something here. Uh, so so wrapping up, last thoughts. Any any yeah. last things you want to touch on that we haven't discussed? Well, I think people should see this movie. I think if if you like the kind of thing with some really smart dialogue that is going to be clever, it's it's. I think it's a great find on Netflix. I don't I, I don't feel bad that I missed it in the theater um, because it's that art house thing. I would have been I would have been pleasantly surprised had, had I caught it in the theater. But it's one that I think people shouldn't let go, um, especially if you like this kind of movie, which I do. Um, Pete and Andy both compared it to, uh, you mentioned 500 Days of Summer. They also compared it to Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind, which is currently number one on my flip chart because oh. of its tragic love story, um, which is a different vein, but the same kind of film. And uh, I was I was moved personally about it in the way of relationships and in the way of uh, personal frustration i felt it with dell and i think i think it's a powerful movie in that respect so i definitely think people should uh, go check it out on netflix yeah i, I agree this is definitely a, a hidden gem it reminds me of you know back in the video store days you you'd look at something and say ah maybe i'll give this a shot and you you discover sort of those those direct to video releases or or just flipping through channels coming across something one night this is one of those finds uh and i hope more people seek this out it is available on netflix uh it's it's a, a nice little film that i think will take you on a little emotional ride but it's it's well put together uh so i i definitely recommend this one uh where where this one end up on your flick chart for you? Really high, actually. So uh, my I, my full flick chart is 107 movies, and this one came in at number 23, which is sandwiched in between Time Bandits and Spectre. It's above Spectre and below wow. Time Bandits, which is really high. That is really um, high. The interesting thing also to, to note is that just above Time Bandits for me is 500 Days of Summer. Oh, so okay. it's right there in terms of relationships. And I like this kind of stuff. It connected with me. How about you? It didn't score as high for me. And this was something that I thought about sort of where I am in my life. Because there, there are sometimes I've seen movies like these. There was one, oh gosh, probably about... 20 years ago it was a Zach Braff film where he was he was in this relationship and it was getting serious and then he encountered this old flame from high school and sort of dropped everything and sort of went to live this last wild fling lifestyle and it was sort of that story of the fear of growing up and I was I was at a point in my life where I was like you know I've been married for years I'm like I can't connect to this story it's like dude (laughs) grow up you know man up and so for this you know I think Having been married for a long time, not that I don't appreciate a good love story, it's it, it's something that I enjoyed, but I think maybe for a, a younger audience may really connect with these characters a little bit more. So it didn't score quite as high, although I do love a good romantic comedy. For me, it's 133 out of 173, sandwiched right, right between Fast and the Furious. Uh, it's below Fast and the Furious and just above To the Wonder, which is another sort of interesting uh, visual uh 
romantic love story that's a Terrence Malick's film that had Ben Affleck in it. Very cool. So that's interesting. <laughs> did you did it actually make you uh, choose between Fast and the Furious and this movie and Comet? No, it actually made me choose between <laughs> To the Wonder and Comet. Okay. And I actually chose Comet because To the Wonder, although I love Malick's films, there was something that one just didn't come together and... I appreciate the artistry in that, but between the two, I'm I'm definitely more likely to to put on Comet and and watch that one again. Right, and the, I just was thinking about like how do you compare, <laughs> how do you compare to Fast and the Furious? Fast and the Furious and Comet. Uh, <laughs> that's that's the 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 flick chart hate crimes. More cars, more cars. <laughs> <laughs> that, that do happen. Well, I think awesome. uh, I think we definitely need to recommend Pete and Andy. You know, set aside some time in their busy schedules to check this one out because we know where everyone ended up with The Force Awakens and how they felt about that. So <laughs> to not let this one be overshadowed by that. And it was. Yes. It was overshadowed. Do you think, and, and that's a good question, do you think Pete and Andy, after our last trailer rewind, do you think they went back and watched The Young Ones? I don't know. We need to ask them. I don't them. think that we're going to ask We're going to hold them accountable to that. <laughs> because I think that that's the number one outcome that can come from Trailer Rewind is that they find the movies that they initially liked and we will make sure that they're okay. We are just like, we're tasters for the yes. royal family. We're making sure <laughs> that, it's okay. that they're not having poison soup. <laughs> I, I like that. And I, I, I'd be interested to hear their takes on this. And I think any of, any of you listeners out there, there is, you know, we'd love to hear your take. On this yeah, film, send to, it into us. Yeah, send us in what you know. What do you think about that ending? Because I think there is some ambiguity to that. Uh, you know, what do you what do you make of this film? The parallel universe piece is that something that's you know really important to you, or is it something you can set aside? Let us know. Drop us a line over at the next reel. Awesome. Well, Justin, it's been a pleasure speaking with you tonight. Yeah, a great time. I'm excited to do the next one. All right. Well, we don't have an official sign off. No, that's right. We're going to work on that. Okay. We will get an official sign-off. This is still experimental phases. We hope you guys like it and will join us again. All right. Good night. See ya. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been decades. I would much rather use Kindle or better yet... Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I'm an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we discussed on the Next Reel's family of podcasts, get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. There are so many great adaptations from these podcasts available in audio form. Stephen JJ talked about a lot of great ones like Odd Thomas. Isn't that series a favorite of yours? Ah, I love me some Dean Koontz. They also covered The Two Faces of January based on Patricia Highsmith's novel. I bet the book is far better than that movie. Oof. How about The Futurological Congress by Stanislaw Lem? That was the source for that quirky Robin Wright movie, The Congress. Crazy book. Definitely worth checking out. They also covered Lean on Pete, Leave No Trace, Aniara. Papillon, The Goldfinch, The Yellow Birds, and If Beale Street Could Talk. So many great adaptations covered in so many great conversations, not just on Trailer Rewind, but all of the Next Reels family of podcasts. And you can get all of these as audiobooks on Audible, along with thousands of other great reads. Producing these podcasts is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. So, we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support the Next Reels family of podcasts. I've been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I've read hundreds of books through it. Couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out. 
and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free trial and get your first free audiobook at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. <laughs> 